You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the second episode of Grounded. Today, we're going to start diving into Hanford, a 586-square-mile site in south-central Washington that's home to one of the world's largest environmental cleanups. Some people may be surprised to learn that the Oregon Department of Energy actively monitors the cleanup work at Hanford since the site is in Washington State. But Oregon has a huge stake in the outcome. Hanford and its nine decommissioned nuclear reactors sits just 35 miles from Oregon's border right on the Columbia River. But before we turn to cleanup in the late 80s and 90s, Hanford played an important role in America's history as part of the Manhattan Project, and the site where the federal government produced plutonium for America's nuclear weapons program for more than 40 years. Today, I'd like to introduce a special guest who will talk about Hanford's history. Hi, I'm Ken Niles. I'm an assistant director for nuclear safety here at the Oregon Department of Energy. And I've been here for 27 years. So basically since the beginning of time. Uh, Not quite that long. (laughs) Pretty close. (laughs) All right, so today we're going to be talking about Hanford, which I think is a subject that a lot of Oregonians are kind of familiar with, but they don't really know what went on there or why Oregonians care about it. Can you start by uh, kind of giving me a historical perspective of what was happening in in the world before Hanford got going? Sure. It's, uh, you know, Hanford really dates back to uh, World War II uh, in December of 1942, uh, a year after Pearl Harbor, a lieutenant colonel with the Army Corps of Engineers named Franklin Mathias uh, was flying over potential sites in the western United States looking for the best site they could find to develop this huge manufacturing processes to produce plutonium for a nuclear weapon. And some of the sites they examined were, uh, one was in uh, around Madras in Oregon, which fortunately they decided uh, was not a good site to uh, select. I think we're all grateful for that. I think we, we very much are. Uh, they looked in western Montana as well, and the, the criteria for the site they were looking at is, is they needed an area that was somewhat isolated. They didn't want a lot of people around because they, they needed both the security aspect of what they were doing, and they also weren't completely sure what they would be doing would be safe. So if there was an accident, during this development of this uh, plutonium and the nuclear reactors, all of which was brand new technology, they didn't want to have a big impact. Uh, They also needed a whole lot of cold water to cool the reactors, to remove the heat from the reactors, and with the Columbia River they had that. So when they flew over in late December of 1942, the Columbia Basin area of uh, what we now know as Hanford, uh, they immediately thought this is the perfect spot. Uh, It had electrical power from Grand Coulee Dam, which had opened just a few years earlier. It had a very deep bed of gravel, uh, which is really important when you're building these huge, very heavy industrial facilities. Uh, It had a climate that allowed for basically year-round work, Um, although we've had a lot of interruptions lately this winter because of uh, some bad weather and snow and ice. And and it had that, that Columbia River water, and not a lot of people. There was a small town of uh, Hanford, a small town of White Bluffs, and in all about 1,500 people uh, in that area. 
So pretty quickly, they decided this was the spot in early 1943. Uh, residents of the area started getting notices that they were being uh, bought out by the federal government for a secret war effort and were given between two weeks and three months to pack up and move out. So how do you how do you think that went? Somebody's living there, they're growing their family there in White Bluffs or Hanford, and the U.S. government comes up and says, hey, we need you to move out because we have a top secret government job to do. I mean, how did people react to that? Did they try to fight it, or did they just go along with it because they knew they needed to be on board with the war effort? You know, I think a, a lot of it is, uh, you know, it was a very different time. I mean, the whole nation was at war and was contributing to the war effort with, uh, you know, rationing of a lot of different uh, materials. You know, most men of a, of a certain age and a fairly broad age uh, were drafted and or joined the, the military. Uh, so it was a different environment, a different attitude. There was a, uh, a lingering problem with the settlement offers. Uh, apparently, the uh, the folks that were making the offers didn't have a a great deal of confidence that the land, as as farmland, was all that valuable, uh, and everybody, for the most part, thought they were kind of lowballed, and some of those uh, some of those payments were not settled until until uh, after the war. But there really was no there was no alternative. The people had to move and and get out. Uh, there was some orchards in the area. Uh, the military cut down the trees so that uh, to discourage any thought of coming back during harvest uh, to harvest the fruit. And uh, fairly quickly, a very large construction force started moving in to build what were, you know, first-of-a-kind facilities, the first full-scale nuclear production reactors, and they started building three of them, uh, chemical processing uh, plant to separate plutonium out of uranium fuel, uh, fuel fabrication facilities to uh, create uranium fuel for the reactors, all the support facilities they would need, uh, underground waste storage tanks, roads, um, rail lines, plus uh, they had a construction force fairly soon of over 50,000 people. They had to build all the support facilities for those 50,000 people to live. So barracks and mess halls and entertainment centers, uh, all of that uh, fairly quickly with very few people knowing exactly what it is they were doing. So if somebody would be told, hey, uh, please go dig this trench, and they had no idea why they were digging the trench, but they went and did the work anyway, right? They might know what they're digging the trench for. <laughs> But the overall mission of what they were doing to produce plutonium was a very tightly held secret, mm -hmm. and very few people understood what it was they were doing. Well, and when they started building the facilities, a lot of it was based on theory, right? They they had never done this before. They thought they knew this is how this is going to work, but they didn't know it was going to work until they finished it. Is that right? I was looking through, uh, before we did this this morning, I was looking through a little documentation, and... Uh, found one, one estimate that they thought it was about a 60% chance that it would be successful because they, I mean, they, the concept was proven, uh, but at a very small scale. And instead of sizing up like you might normally do, gradually uh, they went just from very small to full size. And so that was very different. Eventually they did have some problems. They had problems with the design worked well enough to do what they needed it to do, 
but it was far from efficient, and, uh, and they had to overcome a lot of obstacles along the way. 50,000 people move into Hanford to help with construction and to get the site going. Can you tell me a little about who moved in there and what their life was like at Hanford? Sure. It was, uh, you know, every, every skill you could think of, you know, welders, construction workers, uh, engineers, uh, security guards, secretaries, you know, they needed people to do everything. The living conditions, for the most part, were a bit primitive. Uh, they had barracks in the construction camps, and they were segregated by, uh, by gender and by race. Uh, so the women were not allowed in with the men. They had what they called, uh, because this is a, a desert environment and, and all the earth uh, moving they did and all the, the, um, the construction work they did, it created a lot of dust. And that area is well known for pretty strong winds. And they had what they called termination winds, where they'd have a, a huge windstorm come in, create such huge amounts of dust that the next day you'd have a lot of a lot of people who just said, I'm I'm out of here. <laughs> and they, they'd go to the railroad station in Pasco and, and leave and return home. But the pay, the wages were fairly good. The food was fairly plentiful. Uh, so that was different than a lot of other places around the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, security was incredibly tight. Uh, if you were even caught guessing out loud with a coworker about what it is you were doing, you would probably be asked by uh, security people to leave, and you'd be uh, you'd be gone. <laughs> that's a, that's unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> So from the time people started moving in, the 50,000 people, and got construction going, how much time passed before they were fully operational and creating plutonium? This is probably the most amazing thing. It was just how quickly things happened. By mid-1943, they'd begun construction on the facilities at Hanford, the the first reactors, the first uh, of the chemical processing plants, the first reactor went critical in September of 1944. And what does that mean to go critical? So it was able to sustain a nuclear chain reaction. Hmm. Um, today, you wouldn't even begin to do the beginning of the paperwork in the 13 months or so it took to build that first of its kind nuclear reactor. So the, the time scale was, was really pretty amazing. They were under a lot of urgency. There was the thought early on at the beginning that we were in a race with Germany to develop an atomic weapon. And there was great concern that we were behind. Uh, There had been a lot of great scientific uh, minds that had left Germany and that were working with the United States, but there were many that, that remained behind. And we didn't know until after the war in Europe had ended that the Germans really did not pursue this. There had been some, some work on it, but it had not been near the crash program that we had in the United States. So there was a sense of urgency to, uh, to get this going. It had a relatively unlimited budget. Um, certainly there were limits on things, but uh, it had priority in, in getting the materials that uh, that otherwise were pretty scarce in terms of commercial manufacturing, as an example. Uh, if Hanford needed it, 
they were able pretty much to get it. So when the first reactor went critical, how many reactors were in process of being built? Was it just the one? Because we ended up with nine, is that right? So there, there were three reactors being built during World War II. The first uh, was B reactor, which went critical, uh, as I mentioned, in September of 1944. The other two uh, went online, I believe, the following year in 1945. And there were six others that were added uh, following World War II during expansions that occurred during uh, the 1950s and the last into the 1960s. But nine overall, one really operational during the war and two others at the late stages of the war. Mm -hmm. So walk me through how the people at Hanford eventually found out what they were doing there at the site. The whole project to develop nuclear weapons was really centered around three different sites and two different methods to develop an atomic bomb. And this was known as the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project. So Hanford was the site in which they were trying to produce plutonium. The scientists knew that plutonium had a lot more potential as a, as a weapon source, but it also was a lot more theoretical. There was an effort underway in, in eastern Tennessee at uh, what is now Oak Ridge site uh, outside Knoxville, Tennessee, to enrich uranium for a nuclear weapon as well, which they, they thought was a lot more sure that that would work. Uh, but again, it didn't have quite the potential of plutonium. And then the development of the weapon, the design of the weapon, uh, was being undertaken by scientists at Los Alamos in New Mexico. By mid-1945, Hanford had produced enough plutonium for one weapon. And it was actually hauled by rail from Pasco to Portland, and then uh, by rail down to Southern California, and then taken by Army Ambulance to the folks at Los Alamos. It was eventually placed inside, it wasn't a weapon, they called it the gadget. <laughs> uh, and in July of 1945, we had the world's first nuclear detonation, which was from plutonium from Hanford at uh, the Trinity test at uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico. So the following month in August, after a lot of debate within the White House and the military about whether or not to uh, use an atomic bomb on a Japanese city, by then the war in Europe was over, um, the war in Japan seemed as though it was well in hand and, and the outcome was inevitable, although there was a lot of concern that the Japanese would continue to fight on and on and on. Eventually, a decision was made to, uh, to use a, a nuclear weapon in Japan. And the first bomb was a uranium bomb, so it came from uranium enriched at Oak Ridge. It was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan, uh, August of 1945. And after that happened, uh, fairly soon, within you know the first day after that, and America announced what it had done. That was also when the folks at Hanford first found out what they were a part of. So they woke up in the morning and opened the newspaper, and there it was. And it's they, atomic bombs. And they said, "Oh, oh, that's what that's we're what doing. we're doing. That's what we're doing." Mm. Three days after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, uh, a plutonium bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. 
And then within a few weeks, Japan surrendered and, and the war was over. And the plutonium that was dropped on Nagasaki Came was from, from Hanford. Hanford. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the process, what they did at Hanford, in, in, in kind of the simplest terms, if you will, is when you get uranium in the right amount, in the right configuration, uh, you can get a self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction. And so that's what they did within the reactor is, is they, they loaded the reactors with fuel, with uranium fuel, in the right configuration and the right amounts to, to generate this nuclear chain reaction. And when this chain reaction is going on, you've got atoms and things flying all over inside the reactor, and it makes subtle changes to the uranium fuel, and new elements are created, including very small amounts of plutonium. So after a period of a few months of, of a nuclear reaction, you have enough plutonium uh, that you can then begin the process of extracting it. And at Hanford, what they did is they, they took the fuel out of the reactors, which at that point is then highly radioactive, and, and all handling of it has to be done with remote tools and, and with workers behind protective, you know, seven feet of, of concrete and things like that to protect themselves. They dissolve the fuel in nitric acid, and then they begin a, a whole series of different chemical processes by which the end result is they extract from tons of uranium uh, ounces of plutonium. All the rest is waste products, which is why we're so involved still with Hanford you know, 70, 80 years later because they created so much waste doing, uh, creating the plutonium. Uh, after it's extracted from, uh, from the fuel, there's some, some other finishing uh, uh, steps that were taken initially at Hanford, later at other facilities around the country, one outside uh, suburban Denver uh, called uh, Rocky Flats. Uh, and then it's you know, machined into the proper shape and inserted into the weapon. So when it ends up in the weapon, how, how big of a piece of plutonium are we talking the first, the Trinity test bomb used 13 pounds of plutonium. So a f- relatively small amount. And mm-hmm. the weapons have certainly gotten a lot more efficient over the years. So the bombs are dropped in Japan and the war ends. What was next for Hanford? What was next for Hanford was uh, a boom and bust cycle repeated a number of times through the next several decades. Right after World War II, there was some talk by the United States of international control of nuclear weapon development. That didn't last very long. Soviet Union was already embarked on their own crash program to develop an atomic weapon Mm -hmm. um, from plans they stole from Los Alamos, which included the plans for uh, a very similar reactor to B reactor at Hanford. In September of 1949, way ahead of anything that was forecast by the United States, the Soviet Union detonated their first test atomic weapon. And from that point on, it was just uh, a number of expansions of of Hanford's plutonium production capability. Uh, They did build six additional reactors. They refined their plutonium extraction process a couple of different times. Until we got to the point in the early 1960s 
uh, with the United States having an inventory of 32,000 nuclear weapons. And the Soviet Union, not far behind. Mm -hmm. And then as we saw through, you know, the 60s and the 70s, we saw uh, a lot of the reactors at Hanford were shut down. By 1971, the first eight of the reactors at Hanford had all been shut down and just one reactor was remaining. There were arms control agreements that were negotiated at times that, that further reduced the inventory of nuclear weapons. There was a buildup again during the Reagan years in the early and mid-1980s. And then the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in the, in the late 1980s really forced um, a complete examination of our nuclear weapons production capabilities and the need to continue those facilities. So Hanford stopped production in about 1988, and it's a, it's a kind of a squishy time to, to uh, really name exactly when, the, when that point was because certain facilities were shut down and some were in standby. And there was, for a lot of time during that late 80s, early 90s period, there really was an expectation that Hanford might resume production. And there was definitely an expectation that there would be, they even had a term for it, Complex 21, a new generation of nuclear weapon production facilities somewhere in the United States, uh, whether it would be at Hanford or elsewhere. So I want to go back a little to the time during Hanford and plutonium production. It's a huge site. There are multiple buildings and multiple reactors. What else were they doing on the site during that time? There was a, a lot of other things going on, but the, I, I think the thing to keep in mind is plutonium production was always the priority. Sure. By far. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of what they did was waste management uh, because they, they did generate all this waste, and the, the management of the waste for the most part was, was not very good. Uh, there was a lot of research going on with radiation effects, and they had a, near one of the reactors, they had uh, a lot of animals that were brought in of, of different types, pigs and even alligators at one point, yeah. um, goats, sheep, a lot of livestock, uh, dogs. Uh, and there were a lot of experiments done with, with uh, radiation exposure where they might have been fed food that was tainted with radioactive materials or injected with radioactive materials. So a lot of that was going on, not just in Hanford, but elsewhere around the world. Hanford's first eight reactors produced plutonium solely. The ninth reactor that began operation in 1963 had a dual purpose and produced both plutonium and produced power that went into the Northwest Electrical Grid. Uh, So there was some power generation uh, from Hanford, and in fact... Uh, during part of the years in the 70s and 80s when there was not the need for additional plutonium, the reactor ran anyway uh, because they needed the power. And the fuel that they uh, irradiated was never processed to remove the plutonium. It became uh, later a uh, one of the most challenging cleanup projects at Hanford in dealing with that fuel and probably about a $2 billion cleanup project just because they they irradiated that fuel to produce power at that time. So tell me about the Atomic Man. In 1986, in uh, 
a facility called the Plutonium Reclamation Facility, which was part of the plutonium finishing plant complex at Hanford. There had been a strike, and workers were, uh, were out for a period of time. And when the strike was settled and they, uh, they came back to work, uh, there was some work being done in a glove box. And a glove box is a, a, just what it sounds like, a, a box um, that contains, in this case, radioactive materials. And there are openings through which there are usually um, leaded gloves. So, so a worker can stick his arms into those gloves, reach inside the glove box through a viewing port so he can see what he's doing and adjust knobs or vials or move things around. There was a, um, some chemicals within one of these glove boxes that, uh, that apparently got a bit unstable. And when they started work again, uh, there was a chemical explosion. And it severely injured Harold McCluskey and contaminated him with a type of radioactive material called americium. At, at levels both internally and externally because he was, he was uh, you know, hit by flying glass and so he had uh, external and as well as internal exposure. And the dose he received was, was really considered to be a lethal dose. <laughs> but they used a lot of, at the time, experimental uh, technology to try and called chelating agents to remove some of the radioactive materials from his body. And he was isolated for a long period of time. He successfully recovered from his injuries and from the radiation exposure and eventually lived about, I think, 11 years longer until he died in his 70s from uh, some heart problems. That's pretty amazing, really, if you think about it. It really was. Yeah. It really was. When you say he was isolated for a long period of time, how long are we talking? Uh, first few months, he was uh, living in a trailer that, uh, you know, access to him was, was pretty tightly controlled to the, to the medical people that came in and, and uh, worked with him. Because mm-hmm. just being near him could, redu- could expose you to some radiation, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so he gained the nickname The Atomic Man after this. Were there any other serious accidents like that at Hanford? There were a bunch of different kinds of accidents at Hanford. Um, Just since the cleanup began in 1989, there have been two fatalities from industrial accidents. Somebody fell through a roof. uh, Someone else fell off a ladder. Um, You know, there have been those types of accidents, certainly many others uh, during the war years and and the production years. Uh, there have been a number of different accidents in terms of radioactive materials. There have been criticality accidents. There have been fires. Nothing to the extent that, uh, that someone got exposed as much as Harold McCluskey. But, but certainly there have been some issues over the years with, with different accidents. Um, one issue that's that's a very difficult one for them to solve right now is related to vapor exposures from the underground storage tanks that has uh, been affecting Hanford tank farm workers uh, off and on for several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. Department of Energy and its contractor have spent, I think, upwards of $50 million in the past few years uh, to try and resolve the issue, but it's, uh, it's still proving to be very difficult. 
Okay, so in addition to uh, typical industrial accidents and some of the challenges in the now cleanup stage, were there any releases of radioactivity into the atmosphere around Hanford? There were releases uh, both into the atmosphere and into the Columbia River. So when Hanford first began operating, they did not have filters on the the stacks. And that's Uh, partly because they didn't really know what they were doing yet, right? They didn't know quite how dangerous it was, or they had an idea? I think they had an idea. I think they, um, but again, this rush for production to get, you know, to get the atomic bomb ready to use uh, outweighed a lot of things. But initially, uh, there were not uh, filters on the stacks, and there were problems after the filters were installed with sometimes bypasses and things. So there was a lot of radioactive iodine especially released to the air in 1945 and 1946 and and, and then decreasing amounts just as a, a matter of routine operations. And there were other releases that occurred uh, to the atmosphere in the 1950s, again, as part of the routine operations. There were some, some experiments we'll talk about just a, a moment, but just in terms of the routine operations, uh, there were flakes of ruthenium, which is a a different radioactive material uh, found as far as Spokane uh, from the Tri-Cities. In addition to the air releases, there was, again, as part of their normal production operations, where they used Columbia River water to remove heat from the reactors. That water was exposed directly to the fuel, would be cooled for a short period of time, both thermally and radioactively, before it would be dumped back into the river. So there was a huge amount of radioactive material dumped directly into the Columbia River uh, while those first eight reactors were operating. So from 1944 until about 1972, there were some fairly significant releases to the radio to the Columbia River, especially in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the 1960s was really about the peak year of production. In addition to, again, those routine kind of hard to call them routine releases, but they were part of the routine. Uh, There was at least one experiment uh, in 1949. So in September 1949, when the Soviet Union detonated their first atomic bomb, caught us by surprise. Uh, In December of that year, the, the, uh, the folks at Hanford were part of a test to help their detection capabilities. So they wanted to be able to understand what it was that they were seeing with, with sampling just outside the borders of the Soviet Union. So what they did is they did a test, what was eventually called the Green Run, where they took fuel that had not been cooled, had not been aged, so it was uh, called green fuel. So it had a lot of radioactive iodine still within the fuel. They processed it, bypassed the filters, and had this release into the atmosphere. On purpose. On purpose, <laughs> which they then tracked. So again, to, to gain this knowledge of knowing what went into the air at, at Hanford and finding things 10, 20, 50, 100 miles away, knowing what the source was, using that information then to extrapolate what the, what the Russians were doing. But this was not... I mean, there was no warning to the public. The public was completely unaware of this. They were completely unaware of the routine releases. 
and really the the extent of the the uh, releases to the air into the Columbia River were not revealed to the public until 1986, when a about 19,000 pages of documents were released to the public, and that kind of really revealed at least the beginning of understanding what Hanford had done. <laughs> That's <laughs> insane. I think that might be the first time I heard that. Okay. So Hanford is just 35 miles or so from the Oregon border. So Oregonians knew Hanford was up there. Eventually they knew what they were doing, but all of that time they didn't know what they were being exposed to. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So, so, were... so in 1986 this, this report is filed, and I imagine there was some panic in the air. I wouldn't say panic. There, it wasn't a report. It was a, a release of 19,000 pages of documents. Okay. So there was a, a, a fairly concentrated effort by the state of Washington, the state of Oregon, some of the Native American tribes that have been involved with Hanford and others to quickly look through these documents and understand what, what the impact would be or could have been. Some people, and, and the term downwinder is... is uh, is certainly appropriate for people who are who were downwind of, of Hanford. And finding out that these releases had occurred actually for some downwinders kind of answered some questions they had long um, they had long wondered about and long asked about why their family had had so many health problems. Um, that it, it kind of clicked for them that that maybe Hanford was the reason. So after the documents were released, there was a uh, you know, definite push to get answers. And so there were two different scientific studies undertaken through really most of the 1990s. Uh, the first was called a dose reconstruction project. So it, it looked at the production records in Hanford on a daily basis. It looked at meteorological data on a daily basis it was able to calculate and estimate the amount of radioactive material that went into the air and where it went and that went into the river and where it went based on river conditions, based on atmospheric conditions, things like that. And the bottom line would be that you could, through, um, through a service that was then provided through the health agencies of Oregon and Washington, you could say, for example, I was born in Walla Walla in 1945. My parents bought milk from whatever farm. You know, I usually ate this amount of this type of fresh food. The rest was came from elsewhere. Uh, and eventually, with all of that data and the more information you had, the more precise. But still, there was this huge, huge amount of uncertainty in terms of the calculations. But you could get a dose, an individual dose calculated for you based on your own life experience, where you were born, what milk you drank, things like that. And again, it was a, was a, a large amount of uncertainty. At the same time, there was a epidemiological study that was conducted through Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, which took this information and then individuals, again, could could get their individual dose. And it looked to see if there was a cause and effect between these releases and thyroid diseases. And mm-hmm. they, they focused on thyroid because 
iodine-131, which is one of the isotopes released in the largest quantities from Hanford, when it enters your body, it normally gets into your thyroid. So the bottom line from both of these studies was that some of the doses people likely received were fairly significant, especially for Native Americans that really depended on uh, diet from fish from the Columbia River. The thyroid disease study could not find a definitive cause and effect. And in part because, again, that level of uncertainty was so big because there are a lot of other things that can result in those types of cancers and diseases. And because the latency period is so long between exposure and, and when these effects might show up. There's a lot of people who, who believe very sincerely and might completely be right that their health impacts to them and their families were caused by Hanford. There just hasn't been able to be that conclusive science to link that to that. So when these 19,000 pages first came out, Hanford was still operating. It was, it was on the downturn. It was starting to shut down. Do you think that had an effect on the schedule of shutdown, or it was unrelated? I think overall that, that the, the stopping of production at Hanford would have happened about the same time. There might have been, there were some other factors that were going on. In 1986, we had the accident at Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And the reactor at Hanford, the one remaining reactor at Hanford and reactor, had some similarities to the reactor at Chernobyl. It, it by far wasn't at all identical or even close, but there were some... Close enough to make people concerned. <laughs> close enough to make people concerned. And, um, and so that brought a lot of scrutiny as to whether end reactors should continue to operate. Not just the, the um, release information, but there was also a, the first environmental impact statement that really got much play was, occurred in, was released in 1986 as well, which gave people an idea of the extent of contamination at Hanford, the amount of waste generated by the operation of its last remaining processing canyon, Purex. Uh, Purex was shut down for a number of years, went through a number of, of massive upgrades, operated again briefly, and then there was again this scrutiny of is, uh, are the risk of all the waste generated by Purex worth continuing to operate? So there was a lot of different factors that kind of went into uh, decisions to, to shut Hanford production down as well as at a national level is, do we really need the plutonium for new nuclear weapons? Mm -hmm. So after Hanford production operation shut down, uh, it began a a somewhat slow and, and in some ways grudging transition to cleanup. And the cleanup is what we'll focus on for Grounded's next Hanford episode, so stay tuned. See photos of Hanford on our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov. Learn more about the Oregon Department of Energy's work at www.oregon.gov energy. All episodes of Grounded are available on soundcloud.com slash Oregon Energy. Subscribe to Grounded using your favorite podcast app, such as iTunes or Stitcher. And please rate us. Until next time, thanks for listening to Grounded.